thanks for joining me on the Football CFB podcast, Derek. It's a pleasure to be with you, Callum. Derek, you um, you were born and grew up in Aberdeen. I'm just interested to know, obviously, before we go on to the commentary side later, what were your first memories of playing football like and, and where did you start playing? First memories of playing football, um, probably similar to any young lad in Scotland at that time. This would have been the, the late 60s, early 70s. It was on the street. It was on the street with with other young guys, uh, you know, neighbours and people further down the street and people who you'd go on to know at school and then a bit later up in the local park. Um, so it was all very disorganised, but it was wonderful with that disorganisation, if you like. And then from there, a little bit at school. I was never a, a brilliant player. I knew that early on. I knew that if I wanted to have an interest in the game going forward, which I did because I was passionate about it, it would be in an area not connected with actually kicking or heading the ball. But no, great memories of that period in the, the late 60s and early 70s. In terms of obviously growing up, I'm interested to know as well about yourself personally. Who were the sort of your favourite players in the era that you grew up in, in the early 70s? Well, I would say that the first real world football hero I had was the late, great Johan Cruyff, who made a big impression on me playing for the Netherlands, that great team in 74 in the World Cup in West Germany, as it was. And that was the first World Cup that I can remember watching. And I watched it intently. I became obsessed with it during that World Cup. Watched more or less every game with my father. And uh, Cruyff was the guy who I think we all wanted to be. I mean, he was one of a kind. He was revolutionary in terms of, I think, how he interpreted the game of football, how he played it. And that came shining through. So in world terms, it certainly would be him. Um, I'm an Aberdonian. So when you're from Aberdeen, you tend to have little choice but to support the local team. And that was the case with me. My father was an Aberdeen fan. My family going all the way back as far as we can remember, <clears throat> Aberdeen fans. And um, the Aberdeen player who I enjoyed watching at that time, and I don't know if you remember uh, this player, Callum, but uh, a guy called Drew Jarvie, who was very old school in terms of his demeanour, his way of going about his business. He was an old-fashioned pro. Um, he certainly, you know, you, you couldn't compare him with um, with modern professionals in terms of how he, how he looked or how he dressed or anything like that. He was just a, an ordinary guy. And he had joined Aberdeen from Airdrie, and was a, a, really a striker who became a midfield player, moved deeper as, as he moved older, uh, as he got older, and, and moved on later in his career. But uh, I just thought Drew Jarvie embodied everything about um, the Aberdeen team at that time that I grew up following. Do you remember the first um, Aberdeen match you attended, and if so, what was it like when you walked up and seen Pataudry for the first time? It was, yes, I do remember it. Actually, it was a, a game between Aberdeen and Dundee United. And um, there's a bit of a, a catch to it because my father and I had been down, and if you know the Aberdeen Beach area, we had been down playing putting. There's a little putting green down um, down by Aberdeen Beach, or there was then. I, I, I don't think it's there anymore, but the golf course is still there, the, the links, the uh, King's Links that people might know. And... We were there just, you know, putting around. And um, my dad said to me, it would have been around, uh, you know, 10 past four, oh, would you like to go and see the the end of the Aberdeen game? Now, in those days, 
uh, what they did was, and my my father was obviously a very you know clear Aberdonian. Um, in those days, they would let you in for nothing for the last few minutes. They would just basically open the, the gates, and you could come in and watch the end of the game. So that's what we did. And I remember walking in, and um, everything just seemed to be you know 3D. And I'd never I'd never been in a stadium before, but all these people, thousands of people, most of them supporting Aberdeen, they won the game 3-1, and um, I think that was really when the, the love affair with football in in the stadium was born because, you know, I'd never seen anything like it. And, you know, I said to him, can we go to a game from the start next time? And, and we did. We went to the next home game. And more or less, that was my routine for uh, for a good number of years growing up. Obviously, you said from an early period, um, you were a massive fan of the game. You love football just like myself. But you early on realised that, in terms of playing, it was probably something that you wouldn't make a living out of. So you went down the stage of going into, obviously, commentary. Seeing your youth when you were growing up as a teenager, did you start recording games to try and work in commentary, or was it more match reports you wrote um, when you were younger? No, it was commentary. And I mentioned the 74 World Cup. That's really when it all started for me. And I say that because at home in Aberdeen, we had just bought our very first, stereo cassette recorder. Anybody of a younger generation listening will be asking, what on earth is a stereo cassette recorder? But that was quite the the tool uh, in those days. And I became fascinated with it. So, you know, you could put a little uh, cassette into a machine and record yourself and hear yourself um, back. And you could play around with that and you could try to sound different. And um, I actually began by doing my own sort of take on the, the pundits during the 1974 World Cup. And I've always been a little bit of a mimic, I think. I think I've got that um, that um, impressionist gene in me. And so a lot of it began with, with my um, impersonations of uh, of the pundits on TV. But it then sort of evolved into actually doing my own thing. And uh, then we got a portable um, cassette recorder, which I would you know walk around with and, and eventually plucked up the courage a few years later to go to Batodre to reserve games and to do my own commentary from start to finish. And I did this for a long time. And I know I got a lot of funny looks from people around me in the crowd. And uh, in fact, one person came up to me once and said, oh, you're that, you're that funny lad, that strange lad that talks to himself during the games, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I am. And so what? <laughs> I, was, I was actually quite proud of it because I thought, this is really what I want to do. And it occurred to me early on that the only way that you can uh, ever get the chance to do it is to... Um, to have uh, examples of your work on tape. So I took that a stage further. My great hero, and really more than, than any footballer, and this probably tells you that I was, I was you know, meant to be a broadcaster, not a player. Um, you know, David Francie, who was the, the BBC Radio Scotland commentator at that time in the 1970s and early 80s, very rich, distinctive delivery, uh, absolutely unmistakable. And uh, you know, I used to, to hang on his every word on, on Saturdays when I wasn't at games. And um, I, I sent a, a tape to um, BBC Radio Scotland, David Francie, BBC Radio Scotland, thinking there's no way that I'll ever get a reply or get anything back from him. And um, not only did I get something back, I, I got a reply that I cherish to this day uh, in wonderful handwriting from Newton Mearns in Glasgow, David Francie, um, saying how much he enjoyed my commentary and passing on a few tips. And he went further and said, uh, you know, if you're ever close to me at a game, you know, come and say hello. So we sort of kept in touch over a number of years. And, and that was actually ultimately to lead to my, my big break at BBC Scotland in 1986. You obviously <clears throat> talked about David Francie there. 
what was it like when you met him for the first time in person, obviously having idolised his commentary? Um, I, I was very much in awe, I have to say. I was shaking much more um, meeting David Francie for the first time than I ever would have uh, meeting a player. And you didn't really get to meet players, but for me, David Francie was the ultimate commentator. You know, he was the guy that we listened to. He was the voice of Scottish football. And actually, even now, all these years later, for me, he's still the voice of Scottish football and always will be, even though he, he passed away a good few years ago now. Um, but a legendary voice. And um, I just remember thinking, you know, nobody ever looks the way you imagine they they will look if you've only heard the voice. And, uh, of course, there was that to take into account, first of all. But um, I, I just wanted to listen to him talk, and I wanted to listen to him talk about commentary. And um, uh, later, when I got the chance to work for the BBC, one of the first things I did was they said, we'd like you to go down to Dundee, because I was living in Aberdeen at the time, and just sit with David and put on the headphones and just watch him work. So um, that was you know, something I treasure to this day, even before I was ever... Uh, let loose on the air myself at BBC Scotland, just um, watching a, a professional who um, who I respected just about more than anyone um, go about his business. We'll never forget that. Obviously, you talked about 1986 being a big year for yourself in terms of getting your big break with Radio Scotland. Um, what was the first match you covered and how do you reflect on that, having called the match for the first time yourself? Well, the first commentary match I did was Kilmarnock against Dumbarton uh, in April 1986. And uh, there was a reason behind all that. Now, again, it comes back to David Francing. Uh, David had picked up a, a, a knee injury. He'd been struggling. I know he was in pain a little bit around that time. And so they wanted to, to put me on the air. I, I'd learned that later. They did have other options because they had people like Jerry McNee, who was working for the BBC at the time as a freelance. They had Roddy Forsyth, who still works for the BBC as their uh, Scottish football correspondent for BBC Radio Network. Um, but there was an issue, and um, Jerry was cup-tied, if you like, because he had to also report for his newspaper. It was the Daily Express at the time, so he had to do a different game. And Kilmarnock Dumbarton was actually in the, the first division, as it was, the second tier. But from time to time in those days, Radio Scotland's live commentary match would actually come from a leading game in the, the second division, that they would sometimes think that was the, the best game to cover. And so it was. Kilmarnock against Dumbarton at Rugby Park was the game. Uh, Roddy might have come into contention to do it, but he had just had all his, uh, his jabs, if you like, before the Mexico World Cup. So he had taken himself out of it. But I think they, they wanted to give me the chance anyway. And um, so it was Kilmarnock against Dumbarton. I went down on the train from Aberdeen, stayed the night in Glasgow, did the game, and, um, I, you know, I think at the time, I remember, I remember doing it thinking, it seems to be going well. Uh, I was working with John Gregg, who, again, is a, a legendary figure in Scottish football, former captain of both Rangers and Scotland, former manager of Rangers. And he was brilliant with me because, you know, he knew that uh, he was working with somebody who was, was young. I don't think I lacked confidence at that age because I've been doing it on hospital radio and also with my own tapes for so many years that it just felt like an extension of that. And you never really think about who's listening. You just do the job. That's something I carry into my, my work to this day. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think it, it all went well in my mind. And then um, I got back to Aberdeen late that night on the train, and there was a, a message to, to call the BBC in Glasgow. So I called the BBC in Glasgow, Charles Runcie, who was the producer who had given me this chance, and he said, well done today. Um, 
How about for your second game? We'd like to send you to Wembley uh, this midweek to do England against Scotland. So wow. <laughs> I, I, I guess at that point, I, I had it confirmed in my mind that it had gone okay. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. What a start from, as you say, Kilmarnock um, against Dumbarton to Wembley for, for the old enemy clash. I think that's an incredible rise and a very quick one as well. Well, I was very lucky, and I always say to young you know, broadcasting students, and there are many of them around nowadays, many more than there were when I was trying to get into the business, um, you have to be good, but you have to be lucky. And, and not everybody gets that lucky break. But if you persist, if it's something you really want to do, then you have to believe in yourself, and you have to believe at some point you will get that break. Now, my break came at 19, and uh, I was determined, having, you know, having got that break, to, to take full advantage of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, it, it does come down to, to luck. It's like when people talk about the Champions League, I heard Jose Mourinho say about this, you know, to win the chat, they talk about this, to win the Champions League, you, you need to, to be very good, but you need to be lucky. And, um, it applies in every walk of life and, and certainly to commentary, but, um, but that was the start for me. And, um, uh, as I say, I, I was in, in very good hands working with, with terrifically professional people. Uh, at BBC Scotland, and um, again, very fond memories of that period. Obviously, um, from there, you worked with the BBC for many years before eventually moving to America. How would you sum up your time with the BBC, first of all, before we move on to the spell in America? I think what I learned at the BBC was that you really have to be on the ball, if you'll pardon the pun, at all times. And um, I think what the BBC did for me was it made me more versatile. I went into the BBC with the idea that I wanted to be a radio commentator and that was probably what I would, you know, if I got the chance, I would, you know, do that forever. Um, but at the BBC, I learned a number of other disciplines. I learned how to present. You know, I learned how to do that. And not every commentator is comfortable as a presenter, but they gave me that chance fairly early on. And then most significantly of all, within about three or four months of joining the BBC, I was given the opportunity to do a game on television. Now, it was actually a game involving the club that I grew up supporting, Aberdeen, in Switzerland against Sion. Uh, it wasn't a memorable, memorable game from the Aberdeen point of view. They lost 3-0, and it was actually to be uh, Alex Ferguson's last uh, European assignment with the club before he moved to Manchester United. So Aberdeen were dumped out of Europe. Um, but my voice was on that game, and um, I think it, it sort of um, opened something with me uh, opened my eyes to the TV world. I'd done a lot of homework before that game, specifically on TV commentary, because you know, you've got to remember that TV and radio are different disciplines. Uh, I knew a little bit about how TV commentators work, but I'd never done that myself. So I was thrown into that environment, and you know, that was in time to become really uh, my job, a TV commentator rather than a radio commentator, even though for the the five years um, that I was with BBC Scotland, uh, I was you know primarily a, a radio guy as a commentator and a presenter, but, um, but you know, doing some TV, and that evolved into um, the highlights package that we did on a Saturday night for a sports scene, which involved every other game from the top division and select games from the lower divisions. And that was, again, a bit of a, a revolutionary thing at the time because we've never seen that in Scotland before. So, um, so those five years, you know, a, a great time in terms of, I think, making me a, a better um more all-around broadcaster, um, thanks to the, the five years with the BBC. A very successful five years with the BBC. As you've just said, you learned an awful lot. In anticipation of the 94 World Cup in the States, you moved to the States. Um, 
how did that move come about and how did you feel about moving from Scotland to America? I was a bit restless, I have to admit. And I think this happens with young people. You know, if I got into the business later, I probably wouldn't have approached it in this way. But, you know, I got in at 19, you know, which is uh, very young, I think, for any broadcaster. And I got the chance to do a lot at the BBC. Uh, at that time, of course, Scottish teams were much better in European terms than they are now. And, you know, because of the exploits of, you know, predominantly Dundee United, Aberdeen, uh, as well as Celtic and Rangers and Hearts too at that time, you know, because they would um, would win games in Europe, um, you know, they needed obviously commentators to cover those games. So I got to travel to 19 different countries with the BBC. Uh, you know, I think in my five years, I just sort of felt, okay, I've, I've, I've done an awful lot now. What's next? And I've always been that sort of person, I think. You know, I think you realize this as you get older. Some people are very happy to, to stay with the one thing. But I think maybe because I... Uh, I got the chance to present, got the chance to do TV commentary, got the chance to travel a lot. I was always a, a linguist. My background was German language. That had been my, my favorite subject at school. I'd spent some time before the BBC, um, you know, teaching in a, in a small German school and, and um, trying to, to make my German as good as possible. So there were all these things sort of rattling around in my mind. And the other thing I had discovered around the late 80s into the early 90s was the USA uh, and the fact that the USA was this very different country. And even though the language is the same, culturally so different, but, but fascinating to me. And I'd spent a couple of um, summers um, or parts of summers just traveling by Greyhound bus across the US. So it, it clearly had a hold on me at that time. And um, while I was covering the World Cup in 1990 in Italy for the BBC, I'd made contact with some of the people who were to go on to organize the 94 World Cup in the USA. And that immediately piqued my curiosity. And I stayed in touch with them. And what I did in 1991 was, again, a bit strange. And you know, my, my, my life seems to have been, if you like, a series of professional gambles, some people might say. But I viewed them more just as, as opportunities to do something that I wanted to do at that particular time. And when you're young, you, you don't necessarily think of the risk of it. You think about the opportunity. And um, so in 1991, without any prospects at all, I left the BBC, um, you know, and, and really cherished my time there and moved to Boston, which was the city that sort of spoke to me most based on all my travels. And uh, again, I went there without anything really fixed up. But in time, I was offered the job of press officer for the World Cup organizing committee based in Boston. And, um, you know, again, I, I look back on each chapter of my, my professional life with, with so much um, fondness and and, and this is one that was that, that will always be very special because it allowed me to um, to really get to know not just uh, the USA but journalistically how the USA operates, how it's different from the UK, from Scotland in my case, and also um, it allowed me to discover the sport that we all love in an American context. And you know what I discovered was it does actually have very deep, rich roots in the U.S., going all the way back to about 1860, which most people don't know. Um, but it had been de-emphasized for quite a long time, but was on the way back with the, the World Cup being staged in 94. And I don't think we can stress enough the importance of the, the 94 World Cup to, to where the sport is in America now. Now, it's never going to be what it is in Scotland, what it is in Germany, where I work a lot as well. Um, but it now has its place in the American sports fabric in a way that it didn't completely leading up to the 94 World Cup. So um, 
the other thing, when you're a press officer for an organizing committee or for FIFA, uh, who have done bits and bobs for as well down the years, is that you have access that a normal journalist simply could only dream of. Uh, and it's not access that you can put to any use because you're working for a governing body. So, you know, I had access to players and managers. I remember, you know, uh, walking around with, with, with many of the managers of these World Cup teams in 94, you know, as though they were my best friends. You know, that's probably an exaggeration, but uh, the relationship is different when it's somebody wearing a blazer as opposed to uh, a journalist who they might be a bit more suspicious of. And we had some cracking games in the Boston venue in 94. You know, if you look at the, the famous shots of Maradona looking into the camera, running into the camera after um, scoring against uh, Greece in that World Cup, that was all in, in our venue in, in Boston. And, and that's really where the Maradona story um, occurred, you know, the unfortunate Maradona story in that World Cup. We had the Italy-Spain um, quarterfinal, which was a cracker. Italy-Nigeria before that, which was a, a, a corker too. Um, so... Great times, and I was lucky enough to then uh, be asked by the organizing committee to go to the, uh, the semifinals and the, the final in L.A. Um, as part of the, uh, the, the media team. And um, I just learned so much, and it took me out of broadcasting for a couple of years, but I think in the grand scheme of things, professionally, I was the better for it. From there, you, um, after that World Cup, you joined ESPN, and you called many games in America and also um, games in the Brazilian League as well, and you were up there for almost two decades. Um, what was it like calling Major League Soccer games, and what was it like working at ESPN? Um, well, ESPN was an interesting uh, development because they had been in touch while I was still the press officer for the World Cup, uh, and they had got wind of the fact that I had quite a lot of commentary experience, and they were looking to, to do a little bit more uh, in, in the way of our sport. They had actually approached me before the World Cup, wondering if I wanted to be one of the commentators on the World Cup. And I had to explain to them, oh, unfortunately, I have a job um, as the, the press officer. I'm really flattered that you ask. And under normal circumstances, I would jump at the chance. But that didn't happen because because um, I was already cup-tied, again, to use that phrase. But um, they came back in, and at that time, their international division was expanding. They got, they got the Champions League rights. Um, and the competitions that, that I covered mostly, in addition to the Champions League, were, as you said, the Brazilian League, which I have a great appreciation for to this day, and the Dutch League. And that was sort of the weekly bread and butter for a while, too. I was also able to combine that with a, a show for an international outlet called CSI. Uh, they're now part of the Octagon Group. Um, but we made a, a South American highlight show in New York every week. And, and again, that really expanded my knowledge of world football. Um, being right at the forefront of what Boca Juniors were doing in Argentina and what Palmeiras, the best team in Brazil at that time, were doing in their country and all the way you know, up and down South America from Bolivia to Ecuador. And um, for me, again, it was all part of the learning experience. But um, uh, yeah, great friends made at ESPN uh, during that period. And it was to become, for me, the, the Champions League time because... Um, Due to a variety of circumstances, I went sort of from number three in their pecking order to number one in their pecking order for the Champions League. And, you know, I did that for a good number of years. And we were lucky enough to, to get to every final uh, during all those great years of the Champions League finals. The highlight for me, of course, would be the, uh, the 2005 final in Istanbul. We had traveled, you know, halfway across the world from the East Coast to the USA 
to cover this Milan-Liverpool final that we thought was over at half-time when Milan were 3-0 ahead and Liverpool produced the comeback of all comebacks only to win on penalties. You know, that goes down for me as the, uh, the greatest game I've ever covered and I'm pretty convinced it will be the greatest game I, I will ever get the chance to cover because how often does that come about in a major final? So, um, so the ESPN years were very good to me, the ESPN years uh, in the States based in Bristol, Connecticut, but uh, living where I'm talking to you from now, actually, on the north shore of Massachusetts, just uh, very close to the Atlantic coast here. And, um, yeah, so uh, I have a lot to thank ESPN for, uh, for believing in me and, uh, and especially for giving me that Champions League chance. Obviously, we've talked there about the fact you've covered Champions League finals. Um, when you're calling a final or any major game, for me as a fan anyway, commentary, your commentary is iconic to me. Other commentators are, are the same, and I think... You play such a big role in fans' enjoyment, especially at home, of course. Do you feel extra pressure for a final? And how is your preparation for any match that you cover? Well, the preparation, first of all, is the same for every game. And and I take that into it, irrespective of whether it's uh, a game that on paper means very little uh, or a major final. You know, you go through the, the same routine and my preparation is all... Uh, all about scribbling, to be honest. In fact, I was just going through that today. I've, I've got a series of games in Germany coming up at the end of January and then going into February, a game just about every day between the league and the cup. And you just start scribbling and writing little notes to yourself. Uh, in my case, it, it's, it's all sort of pared down to one sheet and color-coded. And um, it's really a bit of a memory test so that when the, the big event comes, you, you have everything where it needs to be you know, in your brain. And the sheet is there really just to to verify a few things, but um, you know, you're, you're not starting with the sheet on match day. It's something that's that's evolved over a number of weeks and sometimes months if you're preparing for a, a big competition such as the World Cup or the Euros. So um, the preparation is um, it, it, it's always part of it. Um, the pressure of the occasion, I don't think you think about that so much. I think, in fact, you become inspired by that. And you realize that, that it is a, a big final and that uh, a lot of people are watching. But you can't, when you go into the game, you can't view it that way. In fact, my technique over the years has always been to think of one person. And I think of one person who I am fairly sure is watching that game. And I, I try to address my comments to that one person. And that's what's always worked for me. Other people have different ways of doing it. But I think the moment you, you start thinking that you're, you're talking to millions then you can change your delivery. It should still be personal, even though the delivery is emphatic. And so, so that's you know the way that I do it, and um, hopefully it served me well. You worked, obviously, in America um, with ESPN and across Europe with the Champions League games for many years, and soon we'll come to when you came um, back home to work in Scotland and the States as part of the SPL coverage with ESPN. But before I do, I'm obviously interested to know you're fluent in German, you're fluent in English, of course. You speak several other languages, albeit a wee bit partially. Um, in terms of pronunciation of names, I know that came up for yourself recently and you were saying on Twitter that you're happy to, to say the name in the way that the players want and their families appreciate. Is it true that you've also called consulates in the past to, to also just double-check and confirm the correct pronunciation? Yes, I did used to do that. Um, this would be going back to the 90s, around the time when I joined ESPN International. And, you know, for example, we were, um, we were doing, I'm trying to remember, actually the, the 98 World Cup comes to mind, 
when I had all the Saudi Arabia games. Now, uh, as you said, I do speak German fluently and, and proudly um, and other languages, uh, you know, conversationally to, to different, to varying different degrees. But um, you know, Arabic is not one of my languages. So I thought to myself, OK, I'm doing Saudi Arabia and there will be somebody in the audience from Saudi Arabia or somebody from the Arab world who would like to hear these names said authentically. So I thought, what can I do? I'm in America. Uh, you know, I don't really have access to that many um, contacts from Saudi Arabia. So I called their embassy. And I sort of made that my, my thing to do for, for any country that I didn't really have access to. Now, it's a bit easier nowadays because you, you do have techniques online that can allow you to hear native speakers say names. But they're not always accurate because dialects can come into play. There's no substitutes um, for talking to the player himself. But if you can't do that, talk to a native speaker. That's what I did with Saudi Arabia. And um, it's one of these things that I, I, to this day, I still very much believe in, that um, if I'm going to, to be broadcasting um, a, a family name, the onus is on me to, as far as possible, get it right. You know, think about it the other way. It would be absolute sacrilege for a written journalist to just make up the spelling of someone's name. You know, somebody from a different country. Let's just make up the name, and if it's somewhat close, that'll be okay. He would never do that. You know, an editor would say, no, you've got to get the, the name right. Well, we are broadcast journalists, and I firmly believe that it's up to us to get the name right. Now, I recognize not everybody is as good with languages as everyone else. You know, we all have different skill sets. Uh, and I think what does happen in the Anglo world, and I'm talking about the UK more than anywhere, I can say that having traveled quite a lot, in the Anglo world, there is a tendency to make everything sound um, as though it's being said from the south of England. And, um, you know, that is, to me, not the way that we should go about it. Certainly from my point of view, um, there are subtleties in language and subtleties in pronunciation. And I think we are meant to be communicators. We're meant to be good with sounds and words and pronunciations. So... I think it's a matter of respect. And I'll give you a good example from Scotland. Um, there was a player who you might remember, he had, he had played in Scotland and he, he went away and then he came back and played in Scotland again, uh, in this case for um, Dundee United. And I had heard this player pronounced on radio on, and I think on TV by people as well, um, Farid El Alagui. Yes, I'd heard that. I'd heard people say that. I'd heard people say that name. But it somehow seemed wrong to me because I knew that he had um, grown up in France. And um, I approached him when he came back to play for Dundee United, as I did with countless players when I was working in Scotland. And, and I just said, Farid, I'm Derek Ray, commentator with, uh, I think it was ESPN at the time. Um, just want to check the pronunciation of your, of your name. And he said... Oh, thank you. He said it's Farid El Alagui. So not Alagui, not Alagui, Alagui. And I said this on the air, and of course I immediately got people saying, "Oh, you're pronouncing his name wrong. That's not blah blah." You know, and 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 this is what happens whenever we try to get a name right if it's a name that has been mispronounced before. Yeah. For some reason, the mispronunciation seems to be the one that people default to, and I, I really don't get that. Um, so, um. Not only that, I saw him again a couple of weeks later, and I said, hey, Farid, how's it going? And he came up to me, and he said, um, thank you so much for doing that. He said, my family watched the game, and they were thrilled to hear their name said properly for a change. So 
listen, we can't always get it 100% right. There are some times when you know you, you don't have the ability to confirm with a player. It's also confusing because sometimes players come to a new country and they allow their name to be mangled because I don't know whether an agent tells them, oh no, that's too difficult for commentators to say. So you know, don't say it that way. We could we could sort of you know anglicise it a little bit. So sometimes it's not even their fault. Or they, they sort of say, well, you know, you can pronounce it any way you like. Well, even if they say that, I don't think that actually gives us license to just to just kind of um, make it up. I think we should be as accurate as we possibly can. You returned home to Scotland, but you split your time between America and Scotland when you were hired as the lead commentator for the SPL matches on the UK version of ESPN, which was launched. Was it always an ambition of yourself to return to Scotland in some capacity to, to commentate on the game that you loved growing up? It's a really interesting question, that one, Callum, because um, I didn't know if that was ever on the cards, but I think there was part of me that felt I maybe had sort of unfinished business in, in Scotland um, because I'd left so so young and you know abruptly going to the US in 1991. And I think there was part of me that thought, you know, I would like to go back to Scotland and, and maybe part of it was um, to, to sort of uh, to, to talk to, to 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 home again, to talk to friends and family on the air, and, and and maybe also partially, I sort of thought about this a bit, maybe to sort of sort of show, okay, I, I was I was an okay commentator then, but I think I'm an even better commentator now. I, I don't know if that was was part of it, but I, but I, I suspect it might have been. Um, the circumstances were also quite profound. Um, we had lost the Champions League on ESPN in 2009. And um, so I knew that I was going to still continue working for ESPN, but it would be covering different properties. And the Champions League was very dear to my heart. And it was the most important thing that, that I was doing at that time. But in the summer of 2009, things happened very quickly. So Tanta hit financial trouble. And so that was the end of their Scottish football package. And ESPN stepped in, not just for the Scottish football package, but for the Premier League as well. And in the space of about you know, 60 days, they had to assemble a team to, to, to cover English football and Scottish football. Now, that is no easy undertaking for anybody, let alone a broadcaster that didn't really have a significant presence in the UK. But led by a Dutchman, um, who I'm still in touch with from time to time, by the name of Jeroen Oerlemans, um, it all happens on time. And I was approached. I think they knew that this is something that would appeal to me. Um, but I was approached by one of my bosses at ESPN. Um, it would have been not long after the, the Champions League final in Rome, our last Champions League final as part of that package, the Barcelona-Manchester United final. And um, really enjoyed doing that game. Everything had gone well from the broadcasting point of view. But I remember I was heading off actually on holiday to Scotland with my wife. And the phone started ringing, and it, it, the call was along the lines of, um, we're really trying to help our colleagues in the UK get this uh, off the ground. Your name has come up, and you know we would love it if you would, you know, if you would consider helping them out, and you know would it appeal to you, and we could make it work, and we could fly you over, and you would still have responsibilities in Connecticut, um, but essentially you, you'd be doing two jobs for a year, and and see what you think about it. So. Um, you know, I didn't really have to think too long um, to, um, to to feel that that was something I wanted to do. It just seemed like a really exciting challenge. It's always great to be in on day one with any new broadcasting uh, operation. 
And so, yeah, so, so we did that for the first year. Uh, first game was at Tannadice, I'll never forget it, on a Monday night, Dundee United against Hearts. I worked with Craig Burley for the first time, who's become a very good friend. And uh, I just remember, um, you know, being introduced to this team. And I knew all the names, Grant Phillips, the director with a very strong reputation, uh, Martin Keegan on the production side, Colin Davidson, who was still around at that time with ESPN, who'd, who'd been at it for, for many years and, and very good at what he does. And, um, and all these cameramen and sound men and... Um, yeah, it, it, it just all clicked. And um, so, so that was what we did for a year. And then towards the end of the year, I think we realized that it wasn't sustainable because, um, you know, I was, I was literally, you know, flying to the games and then flying back as, as early as possible and sometimes going straight on the air. And I do remember there was one show I did on a Sunday night, having been, I think, in Falkirk on the Saturday and then uh, flown back on the Sunday, um, driven my car from... Uh, York Airport in New Jersey up to Connecticut and gone on the air that night. And I think, uh, you know, during one of the breaks, I, I almost closed my eyes and <laughs> fell asleep. I was that tired. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it, it was a lot, you know, to be doing that. But I realized at that time that I really enjoyed working back in Scotland and in the U.K. market. And so we, we made that happen on a, on a permanent basis uh, the next year. You mentioned Craig Burley there, and um, you worked with Craig for many years. You've said he's became a good friend. And, Personally, when I was growing up and I was a teenager, I loved listening to yourself and Craig on the air together because Craig's not shy of an opinion. And for me, you're a very, very good commentator, especially, um, as you've said, with your experience in America, the World Cups, the Champions League. And for me, you really brought that dimension and experience with yourself to Scotland. And the partnership between you and Craig, as I've said, is something that I really enjoyed. What was Craig like to work with and how did you become a good friend with him? Well, that's kind of you to say that, first of all. Um... How it happened with Craig was, you know, we were uh, sort of thrown together, um, you know, fairly late in the day. Craig had been doing mostly English football for Satanta, but was highly thought of um, there by the, the bosses. And some of them made the crossover to the ESPN um, UK operation. And I think it was a natural, they thought it was a natural that Craig get involved in it. So it, it was, um, you know, one of these things that was still evolving, so even up to the last few days before the broadcast. But Craig and I spoke to each other, and I think, I realized fairly early on that we were going to get on with each other very well. I liked the fact that Craig had a bit of an edge to him, that he didn't just always toe the party line. And I thought that that could be a good combination with me because, um, you know, I'm, I'm probably less likely to be the, um, to be the rebel in the, <laughs> to be the, the, uh, the revolutionary, if you like, in the, in the booth. Um, but we, uh, we hit it off and, um, you know, we, we, we would spend time socially together as well, just talking about football, sometimes talking about other things as well. And, um, you know, he was a great asset to, to ESPN UK in those years because I think every producer realized that, you know, whether you agreed with Craig or not, he was going to have an opinion. And you want that in a pundit. You don't want somebody just to, to wallpaper over everything. You know, you want somebody who's going to, to actually say something of substance. And I think that, um, you know, we enjoyed our little sort of off-topic debates. Um, in Scotland, you're always going to hear it from from somebody you know from one set of fans or another <laughs> that you're biased in favor of this team or that team but you know we just really got on with the job of, of calling it as we saw it you know with two very different styles but hopefully styles that that complemented each other now the other part of that of course is that um i make no bones about it i told my um my bosses in the connecticut espn uh, i was working with craig and they 
watched the games from afar, and immediately they came to the conclusion, I really like Craig Burley. You know, could we get him on some of our shows over here? So Craig started doing um, some um, some hits for uh, for the program that I was involved with, uh, Press Pass, uh, at that time. And lo and behold, a few years later, Craig was to move to Connecticut full-time to be one of ESPN's main pundits uh, here in the USA. So... Um, it's a small world when it comes down to it, but uh, I always believe the good people um, will always get offers to continue their careers. Another um, famous Scotsman you worked with was at the World Cup in 2010. You worked alongside Ali McCoy's to uh, maybe you could argue he's got less of an edge than Craig, but he's definitely got a very humorous side and a warm side to him, as well as not being shy of an opinion. What was it like working with Ali McCoy's on Co-Coms? That was a treat, and it actually happened during the, the tournament. They they decided to mix things up a little bit in South Africa. I had started the tournament with another fellow who I'm very friendly with, Robbie Musto, a former professional with Middlesbrough, who ended up in the USA and um, went on to work for ESPN, is now actually one of the main pundits on NBC's coverage of the Premier League. If you ever spend any time over here, you'll see Robbie um, with NBC over here. but So we started working together, and then they decided they were going to just change things up a little bit, and it turned out that Ali um, became my partner. So we traveled you know, to, to the different venues, and it was all by van um, with a, a team of about six or seven. And, uh, of course, I knew Ali, and uh, I, I said to the, the, um, the team, because it was the same production team I, I'd been with, uh, with Robbie, who then um, inherited Ali, if you like, and... Um, I said, you're going to enjoy Ali because he's, he's a great guy. And this tells me everything about, about um, a person and about Ali. We stopped off at, uh, I think it was on the way to, might have been Bloemfontein. We stopped off on the way to Bloemfontein at a small um, remote you know, service area, if you like. And um, uh, Ali whispered to me immediately because he knew that you know, the guys who you're working with, they are... In some cases, entry-level production assistants. Uh, you know, we had um, a security person. You know, these are not people who are necessarily making a lot of money for, for what they're doing. And um, so he said to me, uh, just make sure that you let me, you know, pick up um, the, the tab for this one. So, um, okay, I let him do that, and then I did it myself at the next one. But, but it, it tells you a lot about the guy. And, you know, you use the word warm, and he certainly is that. And he's a very easy um, co-commentator to work with. You know, you know what you're going to get with Ali. He will usually find a bit of humor in something. He'll find light moments. And um, he actually admitted to me during that World Cup that um, he had previously not thought of the role of co-commentator so much because he'd always been a, a studio guy. If you think about Ali McCoy in his early broadcasting incarnation, if you like, uh, you know, he was a studio man, whether it was question of sport, whether it was during World Cups for ITV. But that was the first time he'd really done co-coms on a sustained basis. And he said to me, and of course, at that time, he was part of the Rangers coaching setup under Walter Smith. Uh, he said to me, um, this is really what I'd like to do from now on, because you're far closer to the game. It's far more relevant as a manager. And as a commentator or co-commentator, you're much more mindful of the tactics than you generally are in a studio. Uh, when you're sort of reacting to a clip here and a clip there. You have to be on top of the whole game. And he thought it expanded his knowledge of uh, world football doing that. And, um, yeah, he was he was great company um, personally and professionally. You had many enjoyable years with the UK ESPN operation. And for me as a fan, I'm not just saying this because you're on the podcast, I really did enjoy listening to your passion for the game. Um, 
just as a random thing, I particularly enjoyed the way you pronounced Emilio Azagiri. I used to love watching games with Celtic um, on ESPN when, when he was playing because you commentated him commentated um, about him on a time when he was flying and he was player of the year and that's one that I particularly enjoyed um, you then moved to BT Sport when they got involved in the UK football in 2013 and you commentated on the SPFL but you also broadened your horizons to Champions League, Europa League Bundesliga and Ligue 1 what was that like? Well first of all um, ESPN UK made a decision uh, around 2012 going into 2013 that it wasn't going to continue its operation and this was a real body blow because you know we had all sort of um, rebuilt our lives if you like around, around ESPN UK in my case absolutely and it left me frankly at a bit of a crossroads I didn't quite know what was next um, ESPN UK wasn't going to continue and BT Sport was to come into the game. But what I've learned over the years is that a new broadcaster comes in, but very often wants to change everything. You know, they don't want to have any remnants from the past. And you can argue the, the logic or otherwise of, of why broadcasters do that. But um, it is often the case that, uh, that one broadcaster doesn't really want to take another broadcaster's commentator. And there was a lot of uncertainty up until about the spring of 2013. And then finally, um, the call came through that BT Sport were interested in having me be their commentator. But there were still things to, to negotiate. Um, as it turns out, many of the same people who had been working for ESPN UK and actually for Satanta prior to that on the production side um, ended up with, uh, with BT Sport. So Grant Phillips, who I mentioned earlier, he became not only the director but the executive producer of BT Sports coverage. Daryl Curry, with whom I'd worked as the reporter on the, the Scottish football for ESPN UK, he became the presenter. And, and Daryl and I uh, were and are very good friends. I talk to Daryl every, probably every other week about one thing or another, and we remain in, in close touch. And so they made a lot of good decisions, I think, early on in terms of their team. They brought Gary McAllister into it, which I think we were all thrilled about because I think when you bring somebody in who has real credibility, and Gary certainly had that based on what he did as a footballer, but hadn't been necessarily in Scottish football for a number of years, I, I think you still win because you have somebody who people listen to. I remember Derek McInnes saying to me um, right at the start when I interviewed him before the, the very first BT Sport game, uh, saying, you know, the fact you've got Gary, he said, um, you know, that will make everybody sit up and take notice, certainly amongst the managers set in Scotland. He said, because we all respect Gary, you know. And we know that that when he says something, you know, we'll listen to it and it's coming from a body of, of considerable experience and credibility. So, again, uh, I will say that the role of commentator is a bit like that of a, a centre half when a new partner comes in. You sort of have to, 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 to work it from scratch again. But it didn't need that much work with Gary. I think early on it was just the timing, you know, when because he hadn't done a lot of co-coms before, when to come in, when to not come in. But, um, but that we got you know, past that quite quickly. And uh, again, somebody else whose company I really enjoyed and, and got to know well, and, and we traveled up and down the country. And uh, I remember having one, I remember taking him to Batodri one week because we, we were actually in a hotel in Aberdeen. I think we were doing a game up at Peterhead the next day when Rangers were, were down the divisions and we were in a hotel in Aberdeen. And I said to him, you fancy going to the game? So we just went to the game. Um, and then afterwards, uh, our hotel was about two miles away, and Guy said, fancy a walk? And I said, yeah. So the two of us just walked over the broad hill, along the beach, uh, down Union Street, all the way down to our hotel, and, uh, and it was great, you know? And, and 
sat listening to Gary talking about all manner of things for uh, you know for the best part of 45 minutes to an hour. And we had many such conversations and played a bit of golf together as well. And um, I think that's important in, in building a partnership. And so, so Gary was there from the start um, until you know he left to, to go back to Liverpool to work there, um, which was a loss at the time. Obviously, with BT Sports, you worked there for, for four years. During that time, you were also part of ESPN USA's World Cup coverage and Euro coverage um, as well in 2014 and 2016, respectively. But another big moment came for you in 2017 when you announced that you would leave BT Sports and return to the States to work for ESPN. And again, I'm not just saying this because you're on the podcast. I vividly remember when it was announced you were leaving the commentary for the Scottish football. And I remember being actually as a fan very worried about who was going to take over because in terms of your voice, I get so used to hearing it and and it was so enjoyable. So did you pass on any advice to your replacement or did you have any discussions as to who could potentially step up to replace you? Well, once again, very kind words, Callum. Thank you. Uh, it was a special time for me as well, that whole period. I, I think I knew when I went back to Scotland that I wasn't there forever, you know, because I have an American wife. I, I you know, have... Uh, always had a life back here in Boston, even though I was you know, working and giving it my all uh, in Scotland. Um, but 2017, uh, I think I just felt that I'd been there for eight years. I'd done everything that I wanted to do. And again, it comes back to what I said earlier, that you, you sort of always have to believe that there's, there's something else, you know, that um, there's a new project around the corner. And I didn't know at that point what that new project might be, but you know, I was sort of in a reflective frame of mind, and I'd thoroughly enjoyed what I'd got the chance to do at BT. Um, all those competitions that you mentioned earlier, the Champions League was something they were they had just embarked upon, so I was giving that up. Um, and I should at this point also mention Chris Sutton, with whom I uh, forged a partnership on air, and and again, you know, thoroughly enjoyed his company too. They're all different, all these co-coms. They all have their own styles and personalities, and. Um, if we were able to blend in together, which I think hopefully we were, then uh, a lot of that comes down to, to Chris and, and, and his ability to, to do that and to blend in with my style too. And Stephen Cragen and Michael Stewart and all the others, you know, these are great guys and, and terrific pros. And I've learned an awful lot just listening to them talk about football. Um, but as you said, you know, I've always had this relationship with ESPN, even though I was working in Scotland and the UK. I've managed to, to be selected to do every major tournament for an American network going back to 2008, the Euros that year for ESPN, the World Cup 2010, Euro 2012, 2014 in Brazil, World Cup 2016 for ESPN. Um, so, you know, at that point in 2017, I was thinking, okay, is this the time to go back? And I've always had this idea in my head, and I see this with football managers, I've always had an idea that it's good to go out when your stock is high. And it did seem to me that my work was well received. Um, I was loving it. You know, there was certainly no complaints from me on that front at all. But I just thought maybe this is the time. Maybe this is the time to go back. And I was also conscious of the fact that I'd been away from America for, you know, essentially eight years, seven, eight years. And uh, I didn't want to get to the point where I was forgotten about here in America, you know, because I'd, I'd worked on TV and the sport for a long time. And I think, you know, I had to be mindful of that too. So um, we'd always kept our house here in Massachusetts. And so it wasn't as though we were sort of starting from scratch. In a sense, we were really going home. 
And so, you know, I made that announcement in, in May of, um, of that year, 2017, with just a few weeks to go to the end of the season. Uh, I was actually trembling because I, I made the announcement on Twitter and I was trembling as I, before I pressed the, the button because um, I didn't quite know what the reaction was going to be. And uh, even though I'd made my mind up about it a couple of months before that, uh, it, it's always very different when you actually do something publicly. But um, I'm still kind of overwhelmed by, by how many people wrote back to me and, and, uh, and said what they said. Uh, it, it was you know, very kind of everyone. And um, what I can say to you is that I, I will cherish those years, that they were really great years. It was absolutely the right decision to go back home to work. I'm proud of the fact that my voice is on a few of these um, epic Scottish games. Um, and, but, you know, we, we, we move on, and, and that's what we decided to do. As regards to my successor, um, I deliberately didn't really think that it was my place to, to have a say in that. Um, you know, they did ask me a little bit, what do you think of, you know, this person or that person? But ultimately, it wasn't my decision, and it shouldn't really have been my decision. Um, you know, I, I think that's up to, to the people who are in power to, to do that, to, to decide who, who they would like to work with. As it turns out, they went with Rory Hamilton, who I'd known, of course, because Rory had been working for Sky and was their number two to Ian Crocker on Scottish football. And uh, we had a lot of the same friends in common, same you know work colleagues who, who had bounced between different organisations. And um, I, I thought then that they'd made the right choice. And, and I'm delighted that Rory's career has gone from strength to strength with BT Sport. In terms of yourself, obviously you left, um, you left the UK, you returned to America, but you still continue to work for BT Sport and ESPN in the UK in terms of their Bundesliga coverage in particular. Was that something that was important to you in terms of keeping that up? Well, the Bundesliga one is interesting. I mean, it's something that's very important to me and has been for a long time with my, my German language ability and, uh, and just interest in German culture, generally German football in particular. And um, I've been doing that for a while. And this is where it can sometimes get quite confusing. The lines can get a bit blurred. So sometimes you will hear me on BT Sport um, broadcasting the Bundesliga, but that's not specifically for BT Sport nowadays. That's for the world feed that's done from Germany uh, at every game for clients around the world who are rights holders. So a lot of people will say to me, oh, are you back on BT Sport? I'll go, no, I'm, I'm not working specifically for BT Sport, but there is a chance you may hear my voice occasionally on there because it's a a world feed situation. But I've been doing that for a couple of years prior to my departure from the UK in 2017. And um, I have a great relationship with the people at the Bundesliga uh, who produce the, the world feeds. And we had a conversation and I said, I'm, I'm going back. But, you know, we sort of agreed that it might be nice to, to keep the relationship going. And perhaps I could still come out to Germany every few weeks and do a few games. And, and that's exactly how it operates nowadays. So for me, it's something of a labor of love. I go there you know, every five or six weeks. I'll do perhaps four games. If it's a cup week, I might do more. I've actually got that coming up um, shortly, as I think I told you in one of the earlier answers. I've got six games and six days coming up between the, <laughs> the Bundesliga and the, the German Cup, the DFA Pokal. And um, so, so that's something that I would love to keep on doing because, uh, as I say, it means so much to me. It gets me back in Germany. Uh, I, you know, I, I read the German newspapers every day, so it's, it's something that's... Uh, that's very much part of me, and um, so so that was one of the uh, one of the things that I knew at least I, I would be able to do uh, while being based back in the, the USA uh, when the decision was made in 2017. 
obviously earlier on we talked about the younger generation of people and you mentioned cassettes and you mentioned the fact that obviously David Francie was a massive influence in yourself and from me personally I'm from the younger generation I'm in my 20s I wasn't really aware of the, some of those stories earlier on in the characters so for me that's been a fascinating insight but for the younger generation like myself the PlayStation, Xbox, whatever it platform it's on the the fifa games have obviously been a big part of our lives growing up and still are now you started commentating alongside lee dixon on fifa 19 just for the champions league side of it um and then obviously that partnership has strengthened again into the current year with fifa 20 um how did that come about and how enjoyable is that or is it more of a challenge than actually commentating on a real game because it's pre-recorded well, how did it come about? Um, I was actually, believe it or not, I was actually in Germany, in Dresden, and um, I, was, uh, I was getting ready to watch a game. I wasn't commentating. I was just there sort of for the day between events. And um, I'd been back in the state, you know, back living in the States for a little while, but I was on one of these, uh, you know, German weeks uh, working for the Bundesliga. And um, the, 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 the phone rang. I'd actually received an email before this, but the phone rang, and the... the, the upshot of it all was that um, there was an interest uh, from a very big producer of video games in my services and you know no more than that and then it sort of emerged that it was EA Sports it was the big one it was FIFA and uh, you know I, I couldn't really believe it because you know to be honest that is the the pinnacle for any commentator who has an interest in video games uh, we all know how iconic FIFA is and um, it's a real honor to, to be asked. So um, we spoke about it and, and I said, I'd be absolutely thrilled, you know, and at that time, again, I just started doing bits and bobs for NBC on the Premier League. Uh, I had my Bundesliga connection going. I was actually about to finalize a deal to do the World Cup for Fox um, in Russia the next year. Um, but this came through that December, December 2017. And, um, we began uh, recording shortly after that with Lee Dixon. He was the, the co-commentator who they wanted on board with me. And I knew Lee because we actually used to live about, I'm going to say about a quarter of a mile away from each other in West London when I was living in London. So, uh, so I knew Lee and, um, and we started recording, but we couldn't announce it to anyone for several months because the, the press release was to come out in June of 2018 that we were on board for the Champions League. And obviously uh, EA Sports had only just acquired the champions league rights so um that was as i say just a great thrill uh, very flattered to be asked and it turned out they'd been monitoring my work for a while and felt that a voice would be a good fit for the video game and um what i would say about the uh, the, the actual doing of it it um, puts a smile on my face every day when i go into the studio because it is a different discipline in comparison with commentating on a game um vocally you have to work very hard to get things right and Keep this in mind, you're doing sometimes many different versions of the same incident in your mind. You know, we're not seeing anything, we're visualizing things, and we're coming up with words that we might use organically uh, in commentary. And then, of course, there are all the names that we have to do with different inflections. And it's, um, it's a little sort of, uh, it's a little bit like um, a jigsaw puzzle with, you know, millions of pieces that you have to put together on a daily basis. And I work with a terrific uh, production team, creative team, at EA Sports and uh, on the sound front as well. You know, the sound is so important in terms of, uh, you know, making it sound right. And um, yeah, I, I just, I feel very blessed 
and, and honoured uh, to have that assignment. And uh, as you said, FIFA 19 and, uh, and then FIFA 20. I'm interested next to come to um, where you are currently. You're obviously back in America, as we've discussed, and you're doing a lot more MLS coverage now. Just how much has the standard of the MLS improved from when you moved to America to now? And do you think it's just going to continue to grow and grow? Well, I think the standard is much, much higher than it was when I started. And when I started MLS coverage, it was the very first year of it, 1996. I had the the title, which sounds very evocative. I was quite proud of it at the time, the voice of the revolution, (laughs) commentator (laughs) for the New England Revolution, who sadly happened to be just about the worst team in the league at that time. So it was quite a difficult gig because it was a negative story you were telling uh, all the time. Um, But... In terms of the standard, it is much, much better. And I think that's a tribute to everyone associated with the league. I think the um, standard in the early years was uh, understandable because it was, relatively speaking, thrown together. That was a precondition of the USA getting the World Cup in 94 that they establish a a top-flight league, top-flight professional league. Um, but uh, I think what you're seeing now is expansion beyond belief. You're seeing new teams coming into the league. Uh, this year we have into Miami. We have the new team in Nashville as well, Tennessee. And um, I think the markets are, are growing everywhere. I mean, it's not the NFL. It's not um, the NBA in terms of popularity. But it's, um, it's made its mark. And I think uh, it's there for... People, especially in local markets, I think that's where it wins most of all, is in a market like Seattle or like Portland, uh, somewhere like that, where um, people really identify with the the local team. And I think the other thing that it doesn't always give itself credit for is the fact that it has been a conduit for young American players to get their chance in Europe. I think without that, you know, we wouldn't have seen... um, players like, uh, for example, in Scotland, somebody who I worked with on a game not so long ago, uh, Maurice Edu, you know, who was at Rangers. And, uh, you know, somebody like that might not have ever emerged as a, a professional um, had it not been for MLS. But, uh, you know, he, he finally got his chance in Europe and uh, now he's back in the States broadcasting. But, you know, I, I think there are countless examples of that. And I think... Um, uh, it's not perfect. Nobody's saying it is MLS, but it's an important part of the fabric. From there, another thing I'm interested to touch on is you were involved in the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup and you were on Fox for that. Obviously, in America, women's football, for me, from the outside looking in, seems to be more high profile than it is at the moment in the UK because the United States women's national team is massive. Um, just how much of a privilege was it to to work on a Women's World Cup and how different was it from what you're used to? Well, it was one of my favourite tournaments that uh, I've ever covered, the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup in France. You know, I think I made it clear early on to the people at Fox I was very keen to be considered for it. And I did have a bit of a background with women's football because I had done the, the 1999 and 2003 editions of the Women's World Cup for ESPN and also for the FIFA World Feed, respectively. Uh, and then when I worked in the UK, among the assignments that I did for both ESPN and uh, BT Sport um, was women's football, was the uh, the FA WSL in England. 
So um, I, I wasn't starting from scratch. I guess even going further back, I'd even done women's college football in the, the States in the early 90s, in my early years as a freelance when I was with ESPN and, and, and had the chance to, to fill in on weekends doing other things. So um, it, it was something that, that I'd followed for a long time and, and I'd obviously watched every Women's World Cup. And it is high, high profile in the U.S. in comparison with the U.K. I think that's true. It's maybe changing a bit. I think that... Um, what happened this summer demonstrated that there is an audience for women's football in the, the UK. But in the US, I think things have been very different. You know, Title IX, which came back in, uh, you know, many decades ago now in the USA, which gave um, women a, a solid chance to excel in a variety of sports, in all sports, in actual fact, is very significant in the, the narrative of this. And, um, you know, the fact is the, the audience figures for the Women's World Cup, specifically for the USA games, were terrific, you know, absolutely through the roof. And that's been the case at every Women's World Cup. So uh, it's something that, that people watch in this country. And um, I think the signs were there in the UK that that was the case. And I was sort of trying to, to bang the drum for Scotland because um, I did run into a little bit of Twitter resistance. Not that you can always go by Twitter as an accurate barometer of anything. <laughs> absolutely. But... Um, there were some quite outspoken people on Twitter who didn't like that I was tweeting about uh, women's football. And I tried to bring it home with the Scottish angle because, you know, these are all um, fantastic professionals who have sacrificed an awful lot, who wear the colours of Scotland, uh, you know, have given up a lot in their lives, sometimes with little thanks and, and certainly not for the money. Um, and Scotland had actually qualified for a major tournament for the first time since 1998, a major uh, FIFA tournament since 1998. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people didn't seem to want to know about it. But I do think more and more people got into it as the tournament went on. And I think it will just only get bigger uh, in the years ahead. Well, speaking for myself, I'm a, I'm a primary school teacher in Inverclyde. And we took um, a group of pupils to the Scotland-Jamaica game and the World Cup um, warm-up match because the SFA very kindly gave us the tickets for free and, the atmosphere that night was brilliant. I think there was definitely there was definitely over ten thousand people there, and I'll be honest, Eric, for myself, that was the first time I had really watched a, a women's game live in person, and I was I don't want to sound patronising, of course I don't. I was really impressed by the standard. I was really impressed by the technical ability, and I'll be honest with you, I really enjoyed the whole atmosphere. And since then, it's totally changed my perspective in women's football, and I look out for for the league down in England because it's more exposed than the league in Scotland at the moment, but. I seen last week the Celtic women's team are turning professional and as you said earlier, I hope now this is the start of women's football in the UK getting the recognition it deserves. Well, I'm delighted to hear you say that, that, uh, that you enjoyed your first experience. And I think it doesn't matter what somebody's first experience is. It's just really opening the door uh, and opening eyes. And I think we've all had that experience, those of us who do enjoy the, the women's game. Uh, I mean, I actually spent part of my preparation in March. I was in Germany for some games and I had a little blank week of, um, you know, of, of research time. And I, I spent that time just going to top level women's games. I went to one at Chelsea in England at Kings Meadow. I went to one in Germany in Wolfsburg. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, if you, if you watch the game, especially at that high level, you can't fail to be impressed. And um, you know, more money is coming into the sport, uh, both in the USA and especially in England at the moment. And uh, I, I do think the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup was the best edition so far, but it's only going to get better from here. So roll on 2023 and let's hope Scotland are there again. Absolutely. 
I'll take it up to the present day now. Um, I was very pleased personally as a fan of yours and a fan of good commentary that you were involved in Amazon Prime's UK Premier League coverage because it was great to see yourself for me back on UK soil commentating in a match. Craig Burley, your former colleague, was involved as well, which again, I'm a fan of Craig. was great for me to hear too. Um, how did the, the Amazon Prime move come about in terms of being involved with their coverage and was it tough logistically in terms of living in America now and flying back for a couple of games, back home, back again for the Boxing Day games. Was it tough? Was it a tough decision or were you just so enthused that you had to do it? I was very enthused and also um, probably important in this is I've been working for Prime Video for Amazon here in the USA since 2017. This is maybe the part that I, I didn't fully explain. One of the, um, one of the gigs that I was offered um, once I made the decision to come back to the U.S. was to broadcast the NFL for Prime Video. Now, you might say, you know, what business have I got as a, as a Scot broadcasting the NFL, this quintessentially American sport? Well, Prime Video are very innovative, and they had come up with the idea of having what they called a, an English-UK feed on the NFL coverage. They had the rights to the Thursday night games. And they just thought it would be fun to have a, a, a British sort of sound on the NFL. So they actually enlisted um, not just me, but my former partner on ESPN many years ago, an Irish fellow by the name of Tommy Smith. And um, they wanted us to be a partnership. So we've not, now actually done that three years running, broadcasting the NFL every Thursday, which has been um, a, a joy. Uh, you know, I've really loved it. And, you know, I, I have a background watching the NFL because I've lived in America so long, but never in my wildest dreams that I think I'd be asked to be a commentator on it. Um, so, um, obviously with my relationship with Prime Video, once they got the Premier League rights, they put it to me, would you be interested in being part of what will be a very big team covering the, the Premier League uh, on those two match days? And, of course, without hesitation, I said yes. Now, one of the logistical challenges, and you mentioned this, was that um, the game at the beginning of December, which in my case was Wolves against West Ham, was the night before our Thursday night NFL game. So the challenge was to... Uh, to get back to the States in time to do that. But we managed it, and, um, you know, all credit to the people at Prime Video for making that easy and, and allowing me to uh, to do the game at Molyneux and then the game here on the States. And then I was back for Everton uh, against Burnley on Boxing Day. And, um, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's all part of the fun. Different challenges and, uh, you know, doing bits and pieces for different people. That's what I very much enjoy at this point in my broadcasting life. And... Um, because I remember people saying to me, oh, would you come back and work for BT Sport, you know, on, on an on occasional basis? And I, I was quite adamant about that. I thought, well, no, I, I think that would be wrong because I made the decision to leave um, BT Sport, you know, having having done that week in, week out and, and so many different events for them. I just thought it, it was right to turn the page on that one and let somebody else have the chance. But with something like Prime Video, it's different because um, you are one of many. As I said, you know, they needed to find staff. Uh, producers, directors, commentators, co-commentators, presenters, pundits, reporters, you name it. They needed to find a, a pretty extensive staff to cover all these games that were happening, if not simultaneously, then uh, in most cases on the same day. So um, so that wasn't a difficult decision, and um, I absolutely loved it. It was nice to be back. I'll finish the interview now with a series of quick-fire questions, if that's all right with you. Absolutely. What did you prefer commentating on, the Scottish Premier League or the English Premier League? I would have to say um, that Scottish football is in my blood. I, I absolutely love Scottish football, and that will always be the case. And it gave me an extra special buzz 
to know that I was talking to Scottish viewers um, when I was broadcasting the the Scottish Premiership uh, most recently. Uh, English football, I, I really enjoy as well. But I'd have to say I didn't grow up with English football. I did grow up with Scottish football. So if I'm talking from the heart, then Scottish football wins for me. Who would you say are the top five or top ten players you have commentated on? Ooh, top five players I've commentated on. Okay, let's go down the list. Um, Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo. I'm going to mention Ronaldinho, who is one of my favourites, without any shadow of a doubt. I'm also going to name Philip Lam. And there's room for one more, and I will give that one more to Paolo Maldini. Oh, great choice, I must say. I think those, all of those players are special in their own right and absolute legends of the game. Um, best manager or managers you've um, experienced over your time working in football? It might be maybe personally having spoken to them and interviewed them or just enjoyed from the commentary box watching them and their teams play. Um, the one who I think you'd have to say stands out would be Sir Alex Ferguson, who I you know, wouldn't say got to know, but certainly was uh, was in his company uh, on and off at various times. And I don't think you can fail to be moved by by the persona of, of uh, Alex Ferguson and also just what he's done, uh, you know, during his his incredible football career. So. Um, I would say uh, there is one, um, Alex Ferguson, absolutely. Um, Jupp Heynckes is another one who I think got better with age as a coach. And I think latterly what he did with, with Bayern, if you think about that treble year in 2013, that for me is, is quite hard to top. Um, you could put Guardiola on that list, although I've never actually dealt with Guardiola personally. He's not somebody I've ever had face-to-face contact with. Um, uh, and trying to give another example of somebody in in uh, Scotland who I would uh, who I would say would be of that caliber, somebody who you would absolutely absolutely respect, you know, beyond um, beyond most. Um, I, I think Fergus uh, Jim McLean would be the other one. Jim McLean would, would have to be the other one because he's somebody who I uh, interviewed probably more than any other manager when I was a young commentator reporter. Uh, I seem to be always sent up to Tannadice. And I think we got on quite well. I think in a weird way, you know, this, this old pro, this, this hardened manager and, and the very young reporter I was at the time, we sort of understood each other. And I think I got the feeling that he, he liked the fact that I always enjoyed going up to Dundee from Glasgow to, to interview uh, him. And um, it was around the time when they were doing very well in Europe. And I think I've spoken to a number of, players who worked under Jim McLean and they'll all tell you that he was light years ahead of just about everyone at that time. So yeah, Jim McLean would have to be on the list. What would you say are your favourite commentary moments of your career so far? Ooh, favourite commentary moments. Well, the interesting thing about that is when you're producing them, you don't quite know if they're going to you know, come out as well as you hope at the time because it's not always just the case of shouting as loudly as you can and screaming out words, you know, it's a matter of finding the right word for the right occasion and, and hoping that, you know, the right sentence fits. Um, I'll give you a few that stand out. I mean, I, I do think that the 2005 Milan-Liverpool game, uh, that was a commentator's dream because it, it just, you know, went from, as we said earlier on, a one-sided contest to 
the greatest comeback in a, a major European final to Liverpool winning on penalties. And how could you not be inspired by that? Um, but the words, I think, hopefully came out uh, the right way. Um, so that one, there was one I did more recently in Germany, Dortmund Schalke in 2017. Again, you're at the mercy of what the game gives you, but that was a 4-4 draw. Dortmund were 4-0 ahead at halftime, and Schalke came back to draw 4-4 wow. <laughs> with the equaliser uh, coming from Naldo, the defender, with one of the last uh, touches of the game, a header. Um, so that one stands out. And then I think a couple in Scotland. There was one that um, that meant a lot to me at the time, and I think meant meant a lot to Heart supporters at the time. Uh, the the relegation derby, or so we thought at the, the time. Um, Hearts were on the cusp of being relegated by Hibernian uh, in a derby at Tynecastle, and they staved off relegation that day. And uh, you know, I think we all knew that the inevitable was was going to come, but it would have been very damaging, I think, to go down. Um, under those circumstances. But um, the word seemed to flow that day. And uh, even now, a lot of Hearts fans still send me the, the clip of that and say, you know, thank you, for, uh, thank you for articulating it the way you did. So, you know, you, you get lucky with that uh, at times. And then I think the other one that, that does stand out for me because of the drama uh, involved, the, the two legs of the Rangers-Motherwell um, Premiership playoff uh, in what year would that be now? Twenty what, 2014, I think we are now. Yeah. Um, you know, those games were um, very emotional. And I think most people thought Rangers were going to be back in the, the top division, but it didn't happen thanks to Motherwell's resilience. And again, I did a lot of preparation for that commentary sort of above and beyond um, because we had a few days to, to get ready for it, knowing who the, the teams would be. And um, yeah, th- those ones were... were from the storytelling point of view, were uh, were great games to, to commentate on. And I think that's the great theme in, in all of this, is that you won't find it being dependent upon one team or another, whether I thought that um, the, the, the commentary moment was enjoyable. It's really about the story. Yeah. And that's what you look for as a commentator, is the story. Because without that, the commentary, quite simply, is not going to sound as dramatic. Just how challenging is it to commentate on a nil-nil draw that is absolutely dross. How hard is that for you to continue to have the same enthusiasm as you would when the when the story's iconic? Um, it, it can be, depending on the, the depending on the nil nil draw. I, I've commentated on some great nil nil draws. I remember there was one between uh, Borussia Dortmund and Bayern a few years ago that was a, a, a tremendous nil nil draw. How on earth it finished nil nil, I don't know. And then there are others um, that that sort of die a death, and uh, you just have to. I think keep commentating, you know, and I think you have to sometimes tell yourself that, um, you know, you can't force it. You know, you, you find words that match the occasion and sometimes the occasion is, um, is not great. And it would be incongruous to, to come up with words that oversell it. Um, you're not trying to deliberately trash it, but I think you, you find a tone and a vocabulary that uh, is in keeping with that particular day. What would you rather out with these options? 10 boring 0-0 games in a row, followed by a Champions League final, or 10 of the most iconic games ever in a row, but you miss out in the final? Uh, I would take the second one, because, and maybe because I've been lucky enough to, to do quite a lot of Champions League finals, maybe I'd give a different answer if I'd never been uh, offered that before. But um, yeah, I think you know the final is, of course, something special, but um, we have to remember that it's only a game as well. 
And, um, you know, I, I've, I've done my share of, of boring finals as well as that classic in, in Istanbul in 2005. So I would go for the, uh, the 10 great games and then missing out on the final. Last quick fire question is, Derek, what advice would you give to any budding young commentator now? Believe in yourself, work on your voice, work tirelessly, realise that when your friends are out partying on a Friday night, if you're serious about the job, you're going to be working, protecting your voice, doing your homework, be versatile, be willing to do anything, be willing to work for nothing initially, be persistent um, without being annoying, there's a happy medium, and be warm on the air because if you're not warm, then you won't get through the front door. And have fun. That's important too. Have fun, but realise it's a job, a difficult job, but one of the greatest jobs in the world. Great advice and advice that I'll take on myself, if I'm honest. Um, thank you for being on the Football CFB podcast today, Derek. For me, growing up listening to your commentaries, it's been a joy to have you and to find out more about you and share this conversation, something I'll never forget. Thank you very much. Callum, thank you for having me. Not a problem. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Football CFB podcast with me, Callum McFadden. As ever, you can get me on Twitter at football underscore CFB or on Instagram at football underscore CFB. And if you go on either of those, you'll find a link to my website there where you can check out um, all the latest blog articles as well as all the latest podcasts. I hope you enjoyed listening to Derek Ray as he has been there and done it across European and Scottish football as a commentator and his insight was very, very interesting. Please join me on Monday where I'll, when I'll be joined by my first top flight manager in Scotland, the Ross County co-manager, Stephen Ferguson. <laughs>